All right. Hello to everyone listening. Uh, we are here today again with Dr. Jeffrey Bingham, and he is here to talk about sin. If you missed the last two episodes where we had Dr. Bingham, we spoke about salvation. Those were great episodes. Uh, go back and take a listen. Uh, but for now, like I said, we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin and how that affects our lives. So Jeff, Jeff Stott, you're up next. Hey, all right. So uh, we really enjoyed having uh, Dr. Bingham with us in talking about the doctrine of salvation. Did an excellent job. Uh, heard a lot of good feedback uh, from uh, our time with him. And we have him obviously here with us today. And so for those who don't know who he is and who may have missed the first two episodes, um, I'm just going to ask uh, Dr. Bingham, you know, what do you do? Where do you work? You know, What's your titles? You know, what, just kind of introduce our, the folks uh, to yourself and whatever you want to share. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Jeff, for uh, allowing me to participate in this discussion uh, today. I enjoyed uh, being here a couple of weeks ago, and it's a joy to be back. Um, so I'm the uh, Dean of the School of Theology at Southwestern Seminary. And uh, so in addition to my administrative responsibilities, I teach both systematic theology courses and historical theology courses, uh, both at the master's level and at the uh, doctoral level. And uh, How long have you been uh, doing that? Well, I've been at uh, Southwestern Seminary since 2016 but uh, I've been teaching full-time in uh, theology at a variety of other institutions, uh, Criswell College, Dallas Theological Seminary, Wheaton College, since uh, 1995-96. Okay, all right. Um, well, we are talking about the doctrine of sin, and we have some questions for you that you might be able to shed some light and get some clarity to the folks. and. Uh, so let's just start with the uh, basic question. What is sin? What's the definition of sin? Just kind of flesh that out for us a little bit. Yeah. Well, there, of course, are, uh, as in most theological issues, the scripture uses a variety of words to, uh, uh, to talk about the concept that we boil down into the concept of sin. Uh, the scripture uses words like transgression. It uses words like falling short or missing the mark. It uses words like evil. Uh, and so there are a variety of words that the scripture uses. But I think uh, uh, at, the, at the source, at the, at the, at the fountainhead, when we're talking about sin, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, failing to make the mark of God's righteousness or failing to reach the mark, the measure of what uh, God uh, considers the ethics that he reveals as being consistent with his glory. And so we have, of course, the very well-known verse in Romans uh, uh where, uh, where the, uh, the apostle writes that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, this is, I think, the heart 
of the doctrine of sin in the Bible. Sin is the failure of humanity and the failure of other creatures, angels, for instance, uh, whereby they fail to live in a manner, conduct themselves in a manner which is consistent with the righteousness, which is in an inseparable union with the glory of God. And this, uh, this righteous uh, ethic uh, that is consistent with God's glory, which we call holiness, uh, is, of course, revealed to us in the law. Uh, and uh, so sin can also be understood, and Paul talks about it this way, as sin being transgression of the law the revealed standard of God's righteousness, that righteousness which is consistent with his glory and with his holiness. Um, so to, uh, to a person um, on the street who may think, well, I'm pretty good. You know what I'm saying? I'm... I don't think I missed the mark, <laughs> you know, or I'm really close to the mark. You know, what, what would you say to somebody like that? Yeah. Well, the question, of course, comes back to the words I've just emphasized. Sin is measured uh, against the metric, not of a human standard, uh, but against a divine standard, the standard of divine glory. Uh, the standard of divine holiness, the standard of divine righteousness, all of which is revealed to us in the law in particular and in other means of divine revelation. And so the question that humanity is faced with, whether the individual that you're talking about theoretically or or the community of humanity, both now and throughout the ages, is simply this. Have you measured up to the glory of God? Is your ethical standard, is your life a life which reaches the ethical quality, the holiness of God himself? And anything that falls short of the holiness associated with God's glory is a life which is characterized with sin. You know, um, years ago, I was talking, okay, first of all, my dad was in and out of jail and prisons most of his adult life. And, oh, and, and one time he was out of the prison, I was talking to him, I said, we were we got to talking about this you know subject, and um, and he said uh, he said well Jeff he said you know I'm not that bad he said you know and, but now he was a bad dude okay but to him he was not that bad and I, I said well why do you say that and he said he said he said because the, some of those guys in prison they are really bad you know I have not done what they so for him he was measuring his standard of righteousness, if you will, based on the worst 
people he knew in prison that he lived with, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I never could get him to shift his thinking from the standard, not them, but the standard of God, you know, and it was, uh, anyway, I, that's why I asked you that question because I do run into that from time to time, but, uh, I used to also work as a chaplain in a prison and I ran into this quite a bit because, you know, they all kind of had their pecking order on who was really bad uh, and who wasn't in prison. And so uh, uh, just a different perspective, you know, when you're trying to <laughs> communicate on what sin is and what is not. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a universal tendency of humanity, even revealed in the scriptures, that, that humans uh, compare themselves not to the divine nature, but to human nature and yeah. to other humans as to how those other humans manifest uh, their failings. I mean, this is an extremely common problem in, in marriages, even Christian marriages, where the husband or the wife is comparing themselves to behavior in their spouse, which they believe to be worse than their own behavior. Yep. And they're very, very quick to point out in a argument uh, the failings of their spouse, uh, because in their mind, their spouse is worse than they are. Congregations do this of their pastor. Pastors do this of their congregations. And of course, society, uh, does this in relationship to itself. And so the, uh, the phenomenon that you've just spoken about is uh, a reality which, which the scripture itself uh, uh, is clear about. Sin is something that is measured. It is uh, the metric for sin is not another human being. It's not another creature. It's, it's not even Satan. Uh, the, uh, the metric for sin is divine glory, divine righteousness, divine holiness. Anything that doesn't measure up to that excellence and that perfection is sin. You know, one of the things I seem to um, notice in just being a pastor and talking to people just doing ministry stuff is that um, generally speaking, Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, there seems to be a view about sin that sin seems to be a problem, not a problem. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, it's just like, well, they just need to be fixed a little bit. Yes. Life needs to be tweaked. And, um, um, what are your thoughts about that perspective? You know, why even Christians, why do we see sin as something not as significant and disastrous as it really is, you know, the way the Bible describes it? Yeah, with, within conservative Christianity and, and even the larger society, particularly the larger Western society, we have become comfortable and we have become accepting of the concept of sin, of doing wrong. The phrase, nobody's perfect, 
uh, is, is a way in which the larger society acknowledges the presence of sin. Um, and I discuss this in my classes at Southwestern. And uh, the way that, uh, that I address this problem, this level of comfort that, uh, that American and Western culture has arrived at about the existence of some acceptable level of sin or some normal level of sin is I look at my students and I ask them this question. You're probably quite comfortable with admitting that you're a sinner. But let's use another term in the scripture. As a matter of fact, it was a term that I've heard in the media over the past week or so as uh, the, the American society and even some other societies outside of North America have been very concerned uh, about uh, the, uh, the death of, uh, of, the, uh, of the gentleman uh, uh, Floyd in, uh, in the ways in which it, uh, it happened. And I've heard uh, many uh, people characterize that as evil. And I've heard the, uh, the, uh, the way in which uh, certain protesters have gone from protesting, or at least some group has gone from protesting uh, to actually violent actions and actions of, uh, of destruction and of stealing. And I've heard the term evil being used to characterize those activities. I think it's helpful for conservative Christians to pause for a moment and to re-embrace that term, evil. Hmm. And so the question that I ask my students is, you may admit that you are a sinner, but what I want to know is, do you believe and do you recognize that you are evil? Because that term has a different tone to it in our culture. The word sin has become normalized. But I think the scriptural term evil, which is also used as one of the terms to describe transgression and falling short of God's glory, I think this is helpful for Christians to refocus their character, that uh, when they say, I am a sinner, what they are admitting is that in my nature, prior to complete sanctification, I am evil. I do evil things. And so turning the language, I think, is helpful when certain terminology has become normal or acceptable. You know, it's interesting because at Genesis, we, we have done the same thing with other words. For example, we will use the word Christian, but we don't use it very often because it's just everybody's a Christian, you know, kind of a thing. So we have substituted, instead of saying Christian, we will often say 
you know, uh, if you're interested in becoming a follower of Christ, come talk to us, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, but uh, shifting that word from sin to evil in a conversation really changes it quite a bit. And uh, I mean, or it gives it, it makes you think a little bit more. Uh, That's good. I like that. Uh, Chris, you got anything on that before we go to the next question? Yeah, I I also like that that language substitute. Um, Especially, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about through my lens of kids ministry. Um, So many kids, we have to convince them that they have sinned, you know, you know, Hey, who in the room has sinned? And they'll all go, uh-uh, I haven't sinned. You know, disobeying my mom and dad is not a sin. Lying a little bit, that's not a sin. I, I, uh, I might have to go call them evil now so, <laughs> and see, see how that goes over. But, um, but no, um, we use a definition with them when we're trying to kind of drill home the point. Um, not nearly as elaborate as that, but we just tell them that, you know, sin is anything that we say, do, or think that goes against God's will and fails to measure to God's standard. I loved, um, learned that definition years ago at camp and we've, we've kept using it, but that's really good. So, yeah. Um, let me, I want to, okay, I'm going to pick your brain on some, since I'm thinking about it, you had mentioned, um, George Floyd the the man that was uh murdered down there in florida and the whole racism thing going on here and we're talking about sin and um one of the things that i i hear repeatedly is about we need to change america get rid of racism and 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 all of that um in 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 light of sin and we haven't talked about the sin nature yet but specifically but in light of sin and the sin nature what is your perspective on removing sin, not just racism, but just because you, know, you, you hear these evil things that happen, you know, as a result of sin. And, you know, um, outside my house where I met last night, there was a uh, peaceful protest uh, just across the street. There's a park right across the street from here. And I was uh, able to watch that. And, um, um, and, I was thinking about what they were doing and, and they're trying to bring awareness. I, I totally support that, you know, and have conversations about the subject. You know, I'm, I'm all for all that. And, uh, but one of the things that I hear that's not being addressed is, is racism ever going to be removed this side of heaven? What's your thoughts? Well, it's, it's just a sad, uh, desperate reality that uh, the ways in which humans relate to other humans uh, is a problem that will be with uh, humanity until the, uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until he sanctifies those uh, that uh, will be ushered in to eternal blessing in the kingdom of God. That doesn't excuse or permit uh, human beings, and particularly Christians, uh, to uh, call upon the Spirit of God that indwells them 
and to be heralds within the current society for righteous, merciful, compassionate, just behavior in relationships to other human beings. And so all uh, human relationships, even in the unfortunate reality that sin will not be done away with until the other enemies of humanity, death and the devil, are done away with at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, although these sins will be with us, there can be sanctification. This is our optimism about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There can be change, uh, and Christians should give attention, prayer, uh, community, uh, unity on uh, ways in which we can move towards sanctification by the mercy of the Spirit, this side of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah, because, you know, it's a, you know, certain sins are more sensitive to our, to our culture, you know, and just because of how they impact people and what people have gone through with it. You know, I, I remember years ago when um, I was in college, there was a friend of mine and he, uh, he was struggling with various degrees of lust on, with various issues. And in that conversation, I, I said, look, I said, we're going to have to help you find a way to deal with this because here's, here's the, here's the deal. Every year there's a new batch of gorgeous girls born every year. They're not going anywhere, you know, and we live in a very sinful world and a lot of things are going to be thrown at you. And so, um, and you know, and he was in the, in the abyss of this sin. And, um, and anyway, it, and, and I think about things like that and things like what's happening now with the whole, um, racism issue and, uh, and whatever's next. I mean, you know, it's going to all, we're always facing some result nationally of some sin, you know, affecting our culture. And I just wanted to hear what you had to say. And I wanted the folks to hear, you know, it as well, that sin does not, sin is not going to go away. Can we bring about life transformation individually? Can we, uh, be successful soldiers of Christ? Can we, you know, expose darkness, you know, with light? Uh, absolutely. We're all in on that. Uh, but this is a lifetime battle that every generation has had to fight. Um, I know uh, Chris and I, before we got on air, we were talking about uh, racism through history, you know, and how, you know, the Germans with the Jews or the Nazis with the Jews, uh, you know, and then you had, you know, when I was a kid, I played Cowboys and Indians. You know, so back in the early America days, you know, when pioneers were settling, you know, there was racism over that. World War II uh, had issues with uh, the Japanese, you know, here in the United States uh, for a while there because of Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and it just, it just, it's just never ending. And so, uh, um, anyway, I appreciate you taking the time to answer that question. Hey, how are we doing on time anyway, Chris? Uh, we've got a little over 10 minutes, so we can move to this next question. I can, I can ask it for you. Okay, go for it. That's fine. I, so I don't have to throw it back to you. Um, so where did sin come from and what is that effect 
on our lives. So the scriptures seem to uh, reveal and to teach that the origin of sin uh, was, again, an origin that happened within uh, the dimension of the creature. But it didn't begin with the human creature. Uh, Scripture seems to reveal that the way in which sin begins is with uh, actions and attitudes uh, that are associated with uh, the angels. Uh, all angels uh, were, uh, uh, were originally created uh, as uh, servants of uh, the Lord, by the Lord, but uh, some angels, apparently with uh, the leadership of one particular angel, uh, chose to enter into uh, the sin of arrogance and rebellion uh, of, uh, of thinking too highly of oneself. And uh, those angels uh, experienced, uh, we could call it a fall, uh, a casting out, uh, so that uh, they, uh, they are now known to us as, uh, as the, the evil angels, the fallen angels, with their head, uh, Satan, uh, the devil. And the other angels uh, with him are commonly uh, referred to as demons. Uh, but they are fallen angels who seem, uh, according to scripture, uh, to have been uh, those that originated and introduced sin into a very good uh, creation. And it's not surprising then that, uh, that the ark uh, angel of the fallen group uh, appears in Genesis chapter 3 uh, alongside, uh, first of all, uh, the woman. Uh, and uh, it's not surprising then that he appears as, uh, uh, as one who is guiding, uh, taunting um, uh, the, uh, the woman, tempting the woman uh, to participate and to join him in the, uh, the same uh, type of of sin, the same type of rebellion, the same type of falling short of what God desired as he and his angels had. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not surprising that he is there and that she does follow him, quickly followed by her husband. And it's not surprising that uh, we see immediately that both of them are characterized by words which manifest that their action uh, has now brought about within them uh, a contamination uh, which causes both of them immediately to attempt to shock responsibility. The woman does it. The man does it, and we begin to see then this pattern of hiding, this pattern of trying to 
put on a costume, uh, this habit of trying to shield oneself from the reality that, uh, that they have become contaminated. And uh, we see this in their hiding. Uh, we, uh, uh, we see this in, uh, uh, in their blaming the woman uh, of uh, the devil, the man of his wife. And this becomes a obvious manifestation that uh, apparently sin is first manifested as an inward contamination by the refusal uh, that, uh, uh, that I am not guilty and someone else is. And so this goes back to a theme we were speaking about just a few moments ago. This, uh, the abhorrent idea uh, that uh, dwells within a human being that, uh, that they are evil uh, in the very nature of their being. They would much rather point to the evil within others rather than to the evil that is within themselves. They would much rather hide from the glory of God because the glory of God manifests to them their own evil, their own sinfulness. And so in Genesis 3, we see that there is a contamination of the very nature of humanity, first displayed in the refusal of humanity now to take responsibility and to admit what they are, uh, which is why, of course, in other biblical revelation, the virtue of confession becomes so important because the confession of sin is the reversal and the opposite of the first manifestation of the contamination that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And then, of course, as we continue to read Genesis chapter 3, we see that this contamination has a variety of effects. It has uh, an effect in the relationship between God and uh, Adam and Eve and their progeny. Um, there is the casting out of the garden. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, there is the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord had made that if they eat of the tree, they will die. And so death is introduced into a creation uh, in which humanity had been conditionally immortal. Mortality is introduced. And of course, they are then cast out of the perfect place, the very good place in which God uh, had put them. Uh, but there's also not simply a break and consequences in the relationship with their creator, there are also, Genesis 3 demonstrates to us, breaks within the relationship between the man and the woman and between the woman and her children. 
And so we, uh, we see in the very early language of Genesis 3 that there will be friction. The relationship between the man and the woman, between the woman and the man, is now going to be characterized by friction. Not only by friction, but by a jousting for position, uh, by, uh, by wanting to rule the other. Uh, and to own the other. And so the, uh, the relationship of the man and the woman, uh, which was originally characterized by the union of marriage as a blessing, now becomes a very friction-oriented relationship, a relationship of competitiveness, uh, a relationship of, uh, of rather than unity, of disunity. And this is passed on uh, in the relationship of the woman to her children. Uh, the birth of children, of course, is a blessing, but it is now characterized by agony and by pain. And it's multiplied because of the sin. And so even in the birth of children, even in the propagation of uh, the human race, uh, it is characterized by agony. And of course, then the third level of the contamination is the way in which uh, it breaks down the relationship uh, between human beings and the rest of creation. Human beings were created in order to be over the earth. Uh, they were created in order uh, to have the earth in submission to them as they ruled it in a godly uh, fashion uh, under the will of God. But now we find that because of the sin, the earth which was to be under the rule of human beings is now fighting the human being with thorns and thistles uh, the uh, snake is there to, uh, uh, to strike at the heel. And so a creation which was created to be submissive to the rule of the top of creation, the man and the woman, the human beings, is now uh, a relationship that is characterized by friction, by rebellion, uh, by antagonism. And so everything that God created so wonderfully, a relationship with himself that would be immortally experienced, a, a, a relationship between human beings uh, that was to be one of unity uh, and of love and of, of filling the earth in a way that was not characterized by agony. Uh, and a relationship in which they were created in order to be over the earth and to have the earth in submission to them as they conducted their responsibility as rulers in a godly and righteous and compassionate way. All three relationships Genesis 3 displays to us as now in shambles. They are broken. They are perverted, they are dysfunctional, 
the relationship between the human beings and God, the relationship from human being to human being, even in the intimate relationship of marriage and of uh, propagation of the race, and in the relationship between human beings and creation, human beings and nature. All three relationships are now broken uh, and, uh, and perverted. I heard a preacher once say that one of the reasons why God lets us get old is so we really want to go to heaven. (laughs) 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 And, uh, and I find that when I was 25, I mean, I was aware of sin and all that kind of stuff, but you know, now I'm 51. Um, you know, I'm finding that my own brokenness, brokenness in my own family, brokenness in the world, you know, the, the sin everywhere, you know, it's just, it just wears you out and, uh, you know, it just, you just become more, and the older I get, the more, I'm more, I'm more aware of the sin in my life and in others and the brokenness and, and in the world. And, uh, it just becomes heavier, you know, I, I, you know, and in heaven, and the more I learn about sin, the more I learn about heaven, uh, you know, and about Jesus and all that. I want to tell you, I mean, heaven does look a whole lot better to me now than it did when I was 25 years old. And, uh, uh, so, uh, uh well, it's, it's, Passages like Romans chapter 8 begin to take on a deeper meaning and we're able to accept them better Mm -hmm. when Paul in Romans chapter 8 characterizes the current condition of humanity and the creation within sin and its effects as a reality that is characterized by groaning. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so the creation is groaning. The humans are groaning. And our current life, even our current life in Jesus, prior to the redemption that Paul speaks about in Romans 8, which is tied to the resurrection of our bodies upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the characterization of life in this age before resurrection is a life characterized by lament and by the presence, the awful continuous presence of groaning and that this will be the state in which we will continue until the resurrection by God's mercy and by God's compassion, there are blessed experiences of joy. But those experiences of joy have to be understood as taking place within a general condition of constant, pervasive groaning because of the current situation of sin that we're in. One of the things that disappoints me most about conservative Christianity is its inability, its refusal sometimes to admit how terrible things are, how sad things are, uh, how disappointing and filled uh, with uh, brokenness things are. 
in the current state. They want to fly to some kind of belief that a relationship with Jesus cures universally and completely the problems and the dysfunction and the perversions and the sadness that continue to exist because of sin. The joy that the Lord gives us by his compassion is joy that he gives us within a constant of lament and of groaning, which opens up a wholeness to the Psalms that is frequently unappreciated. Lament and groaning are a reality, this side of resurrection. They are not a sign of weakness in the faith. They are a sign of the current condition. Yeah, you know, and this all ties back to our last uh, discussion on doctrine of uh, salvation. And we had talked about, you know, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And uh, I'm excited about that God saved me. And I know he's working on me in the context of sin where I'm at now and uh, saving me from a lot of junk now. But man, I am really looking forward to the I will be saved part uh, when he returns or we're resurrected or something. And uh, so, okay, I think we're probably out of time at this point. Is that right? Okay, so uh, man, all right, this is this is heavy stuff. I mean, when you're talking about the doctrine of sin, you, you're talking about evil and dark and brokenness and i mean uh but i will say this that one I, my conviction is once you understand and have a good gra a grasp of the doctrine of sin man the doctrine of salvation the doctrine of grace the doctrine of mercy all those things become so much more amazing absolutely you know, uh when you understand <clears throat> what sin really is all right, Chris, you want to uh, wrap us up and then we'll um, sure move forward. Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, <laughs> no, so next week we are on part two of the Doctrine of Sin, still with uh, Dr. Bingham here. And we're going to kind of do a little bit, it looks like from our questions list, something a little bit like we did with the salvation. This time we covered a lot of broad strokes and, and biblical definitions, and then we're going to kind of dive into uh, some specifics and some real life application and stuff like that. So um, we look forward to seeing you guys next week.